walking my dog and there are four or five what look like FBI or Secret Service cars right on my walk. What's interesting to me, not that that's unusual because when you live around Washington, D.C., those cars are around. But what's interesting is they have mountain bike like gear on the back and a lot of the folks there that come in you know, when I walk my dog are on bikes. Any idea? What do you think that could be? <laughs> do I have any idea? <laughs> yeah. No, I have absolutely no idea. But I, Me either, and I live here. <laughs> so you got to describe this better to me. Maybe I will be able to uh, figure this out. So what kind of, you, you said it's an FBI car. What does that look like for normal humans like me? Yeah, so it's if you remember all the uh, shows like 24 in the day where, you know, the Suburbans and the Tahoes going down the street or pick your favorite Marvel movie or anything based in D.C., it's the black truck that is trying to hide with like a couple antennas on the top that are unusual, you know, try to hide the fact that, you know, this is a security car. It's, it's tinted, it's big, it's ominous. Um, and then it has these blue plates that just say government. So I got it. Actually, I have the answer to that question. There was a tiny yeah. little uh, 70s Fiat right behind all those guys. That was the actual CIA and FBI vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. There's those cars running around here, and I always wonder who are the real players. Is it the people in these little cars, or is it the people in the big black trucks? And uh, I'll leave that to the audience's imagination. So speaking of which, uh, big players, it's really fun to talk about all kinds of topics. Today, we go into cyber. Yeah, I mean, in the world of government, national security, just think of about a million jobs, <laughs> right? There's a lot of people doing hacking offense, mostly defense, very little offense, only with certain titles. And what's interesting about our guest, my friend Brian Gallagher has really been a leader in this area before it was cool. And that's what's cool about him is he knows the history. He knows the law really well. There's a rule set that the community follows by a strict code and these cyber warriors are some of our most important and unsung heroes. So there's some stuff in this interview uh, that'll be fun and interesting, including an obnoxious comment in the middle where I talk about the Berlin Wall. So you have to listen for that, um, as well as uh, some amazing insight into, I guess, understanding what's going on, which is kind of what the punch-up is about. That's right. And a more obnoxious thing that happened is we used the word sequester and sequestration which is a terrible word. It's a Washington word, but it's one that had an impact uh, right around 2013. I guess lastly, as, as we connect a couple dots with Tom Barnett and then Tom and Dale Moore, we went really big. And now we're going to go really super small to zeros and ones, computers, software. Each are strategic and significant in their own way. And as ever, they need to be part of the bigger conversation. So hopefully we can punch up from cyber into some big picture thinking and from big picture punch down, I guess, or punch over into the world of hacking and hackers. All right, let's dive in. Let's do it. Welcome to The Punch Up. This is episode three. We're joined by my friend, Brian Gallagher, also my co-host, Kent Gustafson. I'm Mark Fidelli, and we are here to punch up into the noise with substance and stories about Russians listening to our conversation. 
Brian, welcome. What do you have to say about, well, I don't know, can you even say? Hey, we can we can uh, see where the conversation goes and, and you know, which uh, one of your listeners are, are going to be paying attention. I love it. Are there AI monitoring, AI monitoring AI at this point? Are we at that point? Kent, do you know where you are? Any any clues on how Riverside works? I am. I'm actually AI myself. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, I've been doing pretty well for a few decades of pretending to be human, but I always had a hunch. We can pick a topic and I'll look at our cell phones afterwards and see what ads we get and, uh, and see uh, see who's listening. Yeah, that seems to work. So, Brian, you've done some crazy things in your life. I'd love to kind of just get a nutshell from you for our listeners of who you are or how you describe yourself to the average fifth grader. <laughs> oh, wow. What a, what a question to start with. So if it's a short version of the podcast, I, I tend to say I'm a product of 9-11 and I start there. If it's a, the, the full hour-long episode, then uh, I, I tend to highlight how when I was five, um, my family went homeless, and that really shaped the start of, of my life. Had us move from Boston uh, down to the, the Washington, D.C., Maryland area, mm. and uh, became pivotal on how I view entrepreneurship, uh, how I view public service, and uh, just kind of where my career uh, has, has blossomed out of. Uh, over the last several decades. So your family was homeless. What was the story behind that? Yeah, my dad, um, he, was, uh, he was an entrepreneur as well, also in the Air Force, uh, in the reserves at the, at the same time. And it was uh, just one of those, those situations where the economy was bad and, and business didn't go the way that he had hoped. And our home was tagged to uh, a business loan. And when the bank went to call it, uh, the home went with it. And uh, that was just kind of where the, the story started. So parents did a great job on sheltering uh, me and my, my siblings from as much of that as possible. But obviously the, the change and the impact that that had was, I think, life-changing, but in a good way. I've learned a lot from that and become who I am today because of that. And uh, I'm going to drive this a little bit because before we started talking today, you you and Mark were talking about cyber, so that's that's what you're known for. How do you get from that sort of five-year-old kid from 9-11 to this word cyber? You know, it's funny. I think everything's a stepping stone in life, but my, my first security company I had was probably when I was about 10 years old, and I would ride my bike up to the local gas station and get uh, pepper spray, you know, mace, and I would upsell it for a few dollars to people around the neighborhood. Huh. And that was, that was called Safeco. You know, that was kind of my, my first uh, entrepreneurial role within, within security. What kind of pepper spray? Like a certain kind? Just any? Did, were you an expert? Whatever, whatever, <laughs> the local, whatever the local store had, you know. So then I was always into to tech and trying to uh, come up with ideas behind problems. And so uh, I went to, to patent my first solution when I was 14 years old. And I actually recently was digging through some files and, and found uh, some of my old uh, inventions and designs. Fortunately, we weren't able to afford the, the full process at the time and never was able to uh, have that um, kind of go all the way through. Uh, but I, I had this drive with, with business and with solving problems and coming up with new ideas. But I also had this drive towards public service. And you know, I mentioned my father was in the Air Force. Well, I became a, an EMT uh, in high school. EMT and went on to be a paramedic, firefighter, interned with the local police department, and uh, was pursuing a degree as a paramedic when 9-11 happened. And so 
I kind of had one foot in law enforcement and I had another foot in uh, emergency medicine, emergency services. And I had a friend who was working for the United States Secret Service and had told me about a, a new division at the Secret Service that they were trying to upskill and upstaff uh, post 9-11. They focused on hazardous agents and emergency medical response and uh, ended up applying and getting hired by the Secret Service. And right after 9-11, uh, that just kind of changed my, my career. So I did that for a decade. And while I was working with the Secret Service, I was in the technical security division and I specialized in countermeasure systems for weapons of mass destruction. So chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive hazards. And over a period of time, I realized how as we were designing all of these detection systems, we were plugging them into networks. And there was this huge threat associated in the cyberspace and this intersection between physical security and cybersecurity. So I had a mentor and I was um, gonna pursue getting an MBA. And my mentor said, well, you know, maybe you should think about cybersecurity. And, and I did that. So I went and I got a master's in cybersecurity and forensics. And then in 2013, when sequestration happened, uh, kind of gave me the, uh, the push to leave government and go into the private sector. Um, and that's exactly what I did. So, Can you define sequestration? <laughs> <laughs> government trying to save money and making really bad decisions. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard about that somewhere. Huh? Yeah. The sequester. I haven't heard that in a long time. I remember... I was the victim of sequestration also in 2013. I had my own business and that's what I sort of walked a straight and narrow and went back into sort of more of the corporate world. I was like, this is lucrative and fun and interesting and impactful until it's not. And so people who don't understand the DC market, I mean, you've experienced it. It's funny to know you moved to here from the outside. My parents did also. The amount of like verbiage that somebody like Kent and I have to cut through just to have a conversation about kind of any normal stuff. And we just are fluent in it. And here's a question for you. Like, so you wrote a book, you have to think like of an audience member who doesn't even know how to start spelling a word like sequestration. <laughs> how have you had to get from the alphabet soup of working inside the government and understanding just like the turf wars, like just the little things all the way to, okay, here's what it means to you when you're on your computer, when you're reading about AI right now, when you're thinking about, so I spent time in defense, so I think about you know US-China, US-Russia, like we joked about that. I mean, these tools are powerful elements of statecraft, state actors, emerging technology in the marketplace by entrepreneurs plays a huge role in how those technologies are harvested and used. How do you kind of get people to calm down and think through what actually is involved in cyber when you're stopping, writing, communicating, because there's a huge language gap, even in the government, but certainly outside the government when it comes to cyber. Like, how, how have you navigated that? Yeah, great question, Mark. So I have the privilege of my business partner and a mentor as well, has really taught me how to break things down that is very technical uh, into easy speak for people to understand. And, like, for um, example, I'm just curious. Let's, t let's run one through. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in there. So, uh, so my business partner, his name's JT, Dr. JT Kosman. Mm -hmm. And if you look him up, he's literally referred to as one of the world-leading experts in applied artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. Mm -hmm. um, he's probably the one that you really want on, the, on this episode, but you got me instead. 
<laughs> so one of the things that JT excels in is behavioral data science. So he has two PhDs, one in mathematics and a second in psychology. And he's brilliant in understanding people, but also, you know, math and tech and, and these big algorithms. So, you know, he can look at when, you, when you're thinking of, okay, behavioral data science, you know, Brian, what does that mean? You just talked about how you dumb things down. So let's dumb that down a little bit, right? So kind of three aspects of that. Uh, take the data science piece. Uh, that's really deriving insights uh, from an unimaginable amount of information, you know, a lot of data and how do I get insights out of it? You know, mathematics is simply the, the science of patterns when you break it down. And then psychology from this perspective is, you know, how do you describe, understand, predict, or really influence behavior in somebody? And when you, when you mix all those three things together, you know, you get this, this behavioral data science and, and looking at all of these, these pieces uh, to get outcome, right? And so JT being a, a professor teaching students uh, down to teaching, you know, grandchildren has had a way of, of making this stuff understandable for the normal person. So when you're asking about cybersecurity, uh, we would get questions all the time. I mean, cyber is so large. There's so many parts of it, so many things that you need to worry about. And everybody was saying the same thing. You know, well, what do I do? How do I protect my business? Whether it's, it's physically or how do I protect it from a reputational perspective? How do I protect it financially? So we decided to write a book called Stay Cyber Safe, what every CEO should know about cybersecurity. Our third edition that's going to be coming out next year, we're going to change it to what every CXO uh, should know about cybersecurity because we've learned, um, you know, it's, it applies well beyond just the CEO. But we said, okay, let's take a book, 100 pages, a lot of pictures, comics, and drawings, and, and let's just break these things down at a very high level, not so the CXO becomes an expert in cybersecurity, but so they understand the right questions to ask as they're trying to make business decisions moving forward. Mm. So that kind of became our, our, our focus. And the reason we pushed into cyber was because of uh, a threat to our country. Frankly, in December of 2020, while we were working with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, we were also working with the U.S. Department of Defense on a behavioral data science project, there was a nation state attack. So using terms in DC, nation state would be a, a, another foreign country. So like Russia attacking or doing something towards the United States. In December of 2020, what was discovered is that the Russians had infiltrated a product called Orion from a company called SolarWinds. And over time, we had learned that they were actually in this company's infrastructure and software uh, for about seven, eight months before it ever became uh, known. Well, the same week that that got announced, you know, my team happened to have some big meetings lined up uh, already in DC with, with Brass. And we realized this, this threat that we were gonna be facing uh, as a nation. We realized that everything runs on software uh, these days. It, just look around, it doesn't matter what industry you're in and what you're doing. but the world runs on software. And this software was under attack and it was under attack 
by a foreign nation, and it was being attacked in a way that we hadn't seen before. It was this introduction of what was called software supply chain attacks, where people were attacking the source of the software as the software was being built and put together, and that was getting pushed out into uh, you know, the world and industry. So with SolarWinds as an example, it affected 18,000 companies. Almost every aspect of the federal government cost over a billion dollars worth of damage, and it was huge. So at that moment, we pulled our team together and said, what do we know uh, just about how people work? You know, sort of that, that process of, of psychology, right? What do we know about tech? Uh, how can we look at behavior of a person and, and what we have from a tech perspective and stop attacks like this in the future? And that became the basis of our invention, Kovac, which is now the company that I run. Cool. That's super, super interesting in so many different ways. I, I, as a layperson in that space, the second you say cyber, I start my getting palpitations, right? So all of a sudden we're in this negative space. I'm thinking about how um, GPT is going to take a, like a giant transformer-like form and take over cities. And <laughs> where are we headed? So I think you, you mapped out that. That gave us a map of where, where we are in a way. Where are we headed? I mean, in the next five years. And is your job changing? I mean, this guy just got a Nobel Prize or this, these five people a Nobel Prize for, for they're going to have faster computing by many times of what we've ever seen before. And yeah, what are we looking towards? What What's the future? It's a great question. And obviously, if I had a crystal ball, um, I'd go play the lottery. But uh, given what I've seen and given the fact that we're talking about data and patterns and matching and predictions, mm -hmm. I can look at the fact that in the last three years, there's been over a hundred, excuse me, over a 742% increase just in software supply chain attacks, you know, specifically. And I can see that the cost in cybercrime is just exponentially growing year after year, that the chances of a business getting a cyber attack is now 50% over the next 12 months, you know, flip of a coin. So there's this race for how do you keep up with change? You know, you mentioned chat GPT. I just got back from a conference. Um, we were honored to be selected by uh, the outlet at TechCrunch as um, one of the country's top 200 tech startups for this year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So we were out at their um, Disrupt uh, event in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and I had a booth and, and talking to people, and I had this slide where there's a, a picture of a hacker, with a, you know, kind of a Chinese flag behind him, and a picture of a hacker with a Russian flag. And then I had a little baby on a laptop with a chat GPT symbol. And, and the point I was getting across is the days of just looking at a, a database and saying, you know, does this virus exists on my computer or what I'm seeing within software, does it match a database of, of known threats is gone. I mean, that's still important and that still has to happen, uh, but new threats are being created every second. It's just that much easier now, again, from the kid in the basement to the most sophisticated adversaries to the United States. And, and we have to have a way to stay ahead of that and, and try to catch up with it. So that's interesting. You said we have to stay ahead and catch up. And I'm going to play back something and I want to get your thoughts. In our last conversation, we had doctors Tom Barnett and Dale Moore. Tom just wrote a book called America's New Map. And he's sort of a trained 
he has like roots in, as he would say, Marxian, not Marxist, sort of base superstructure kind of thoughts, big economic models, et cetera, sort of the Cold War era thinking. And then he's sort of forecasting these through lines of how the world's going to change. And Dr. Moore worked in the Navy and he has an educational doctorate. And we talked about complex adaptive systems. So this idea of being behind and ahead at the same time, like I think we're going to end up spending a lot of money chasing preventative measures. And then there's some amount of just thinking through the problem more clearly using sort of old school methods. So some will be get ahead. For example, what can ChatGPT do? Let's let's model and emulate more quickly. But then it does seem almost absurd because anyone, like you said, can sort of use ChatGPT to create some code, to do some things that have destructive or disruptive effects, or just monitoring, can just monitor what's happening out there. How do you start to get out of the fear that there's this is like inevitably bad? <laughs> Back to the behavioral data science piece. Like how, how do you get us talking about what's actually doable? Because even our language betrays us. Well, we have to get ahead. We're falling behind. And you know what DOD and the government likes to do? Throw a bunch of money, chasing a threat. It's the new crisis. And I'm not sure this is this is that's the right play. What do, what do you think is like the strategic thinking? What do the old heads have to say, Dr. Uh, Cosman and others about like specifically ChatGPT and cyber and, and how do we get ahead of it? Or or is that even the right way to think about it? Yeah, I mean, I have I have several thoughts related to it. And I think I want to start with responding to your question with right now we're playing by a different set of rules than our, our competition. And unfortunately, yes, our rules, you know, may be more moral, but they're making it a lot harder to win. And uh, what do I mean by that? You know, what am I referring to? China, Russia, other nations, you know, if they want to pursue something from a technological perspective, and, and I'm, I'm discounting the fact that they're just going to steal information or espionage or things along those lines, uh, I'm talking about legitimately funding something and doing it. They do it. In, in the States, uh, in the U.S., the amount of, of just red tape and bureaucratic frustration to get projects moving and funded is just ridiculous. And you know, I've been in the government, on the government side and on the private side, and the government can have a need and an entrepreneur can have an idea. And it could take two years uh, if everything goes right before you're, you're ever pursuing turning that into something. Right. And that's not a way that we can catch up or stay ahead. And definitely understand that there's, there's many kind of rapid paths within government. But the vast majority of it uh, is just slowing process down. The second item has to do with, I think, venture capital and money to support innovation that's coming out of the out of industry and, and out of entrepreneurs. Most people don't realize, but Silicon Valley got its start initially because of the Department of Defense yeah, um, and the funding. Yeah, that was that was there. Now, uh, I spent a lot of time on the West Coast and the Valley, spent a lot of time on the East Coast, mm-hmm. and there's a stark difference of opinion um, on where money goes based on what you're doing with it. And in fact, you know, when I go to the West Coast, I I have to downplay anything related to government. Um, And it's very different on the East Coast. 
And what is, what's their pushback? What's the like? What's a typical venture capital think of government? Like inefficient? You're not going to like. They're not going to get the return on our investment. Like, what, how does it? Yeah, it's all about money and it's all about returns. And so, yeah. if you're if you're selling a commercial product, whether it's a software as a service, SaaS, or or yeah. another means, um, it, it's very easy to predict what uh, growth looks like and success looks like. Um, but the government's a wild card. Whether uh, somebody's going to get a contract or whether there's going to be a renewal or what the the mm-hmm. outcome and value is going to be in an R&D funded project. It's very difficult to correlate that over into the, the capital venture markets. Now, there are people that are starting to do it. You know, a lot of the big names are starting to come out with um, you know, national security funds and, and things along those lines. But until there's more money available, the innovation at the nation state, the government level uh, is going to be slow. So, yeah, so the threat is going to go faster. We're going to go slower. So back to morals, what's, what's interesting to me, and I mean, this is strategy or morality, right? Is there, is there a dichotomy between stewarding and protecting the country by using whatever means necessary, or is it necessarily wrong, and therefore the lawyers will get involved the moralists will get involved. Like, how? Let's just say this is a 2024 election issue: ChatGPT, cyber, China, Russia, and the baby in your slide. All of that is working against us unless we kind of leap over our moral concerns. Lots of strategists would say, "Well, this has always been how it is with between nation states. It, we impose our own rules. It's try to win, not." morally expect your adversary to follow the same rules as you. But that goes in, flies in the face of the Western tradition and freedom, in a sense. How do you, like, let's get down to brass tacks. Like, if you were on the, the stage on 2020, you know, it was the 2024, you're asking presidential candidates or even commenting before you ask a question. What's the gap in our moral thinking as a country that we won't play the strategy game to win? The one you're saying right here. Tough question. <laughs> it is. It's a tough question, and it's not as black and white as I think you you laid it out in the question. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not suggesting we we have to not be moral or or go right. back on morality. I don't think that at all. But what I think is that the amount of red tape that we have put into things prevents us from ultimately being able to to succeed. There being you know too much concern over perfect, (laughs) perfect example uh, right here. My team worked for a year and a half on a cyber contract proposal for the U.S. Air Force. We were part of a larger team, um, over 1,200 pages submitted into the government just from our team into this proposal. They received 250 proposals that had come in for this project with similar groups that had spent a year and a half just preparing the documents, time, money, effort. I'm I'm a small business. You know, that had to come out of my pocket to pay somebody to do that. Right. And, uh, just two, three weeks ago, the air force decided to cancel everything because they didn't know how to evaluate that much information that they were receiving. Hmm. So you literally had hundreds of companies spending one to two years preparing to solve problem related to cyber for the United States Air Force 
and two years worth of effort and millions of dollars from the commercial sector thrown away because they can't figure out how to evaluate the proposals. That's a problem. I find that so fascinating in stark contrast to that little that picture that sticks in my mind of the baby with the uh, chat gpt <laughs> uh and the, the the stark reality of thousands of pages thousands upon thousands of pages and, and time and money spent versus that that little baby with gpt so is that is that the is that the environment we're living in that that gradient i guess I mean, if you're suggesting that ChatGPT should evaluate proposals, no. no. <laughs> I don't think that's the answer. Employ the babies, yeah. No, no. But but uh, where are we? Well, so hold on. Let, let... But that is a question. Yeah, right. Because aren't, aren't, isn't government going to be using GPT to do that? And if not the government, then companies. So I think there's an there's aspect of, yeah, evaluation with machine learning uh, and AI whether it's ChatGPT specifically, no, there absolutely uh, can be a lot that's done narrowing down qualifications, looking at companies, evaluating risk. I mean, there's things that within that procurement cycle that 100% can be automated and, and approved on without a doubt. But I think part of where I've seen things go wrong in the last, say, 10 years, maybe five years, is that everything has gotten bigger within government from the perspective of, of what they're trying to do, what they're trying to purchase. So mm-hmm. the Air Force is trying to issue a multi-billion dollar contract to do all of these things at once versus issuing funds to solve problems <laughs> uh, right. and, and breaking that down you know, more to the unit level that, that needs to do things. You know, I think of the JEDI contract that happened, yep. um, you know, again, for those that aren't in the D.C. area, this was the Department of Defense moving into a cloud-based environment. And it took years, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And what, what happened was they ended up splitting it between the three to four major yeah, cloud It was providers. first AWS. Now it's AWS, Google, Microsoft, Microsoft and I think Oracle as a piece. Oracle, Oracle Correct. Cloud, right. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, that's now that's all anybody talks about is like, okay, I mean, when a government person is talking like a CIO or, or IT provider or a program manager, an answer always is, the, you know, the crowd with vendor capabilities that would have to sit on one of those products, the government's answer is, hey, pick one, we can go to any of them. And it's, it's just, it's basically, we're going to be the contract referees, we're going to not let the lawyers blame us almost, I mean, I'm not presuming to know what their motives are, but I'm going down this road because psychology is what we talked about at the top. These are humans too, right? Like the Govies don't want to be doing wrong more than I think they want to do right, not by their natural inclination, but because that's the way our system is set up. And that's really what I'm cracking on with this morality versus strategy question. At the executive level, the president, accountable to the American people. This is a 2024 election issue because only the the top of the executive branch can break through, right? It's not just going to be the enlightened program manager who's going to get this solved. This really is a top-level election issue because the nation-state actors aren't waiting for us to look at the lawyers and say, well, can we give Brian a contract? He could do a thing and solve a problem and then obviously then learn and learn more. 
And you're not even in the strategy game unless you're playing and interacting with the adversary who's using AI watching us, right? Like we're sitting on the sidelines looking around saying, no lawyers, no lawyers. And meanwhile, me as an American, my kids, your kids, all of us, we're the ones that are going to be holding the bag at the end of this. Am, am I right? Or is that too simplistic and bombastic? No, I mean, I, 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 you are right. It's, it's ultimately impacting us. Uh, now, yeah. look, I, I, I was beating on the government a little bit related to procurement and time and, and decisions. Uh, but I'll also say that, you know, I think in the last uh, three, four years, there has been a lot of positive focus out of the executive branch of the government on cyber. Nice. So since the since the fall of the Berlin Wall, what's the what's the actual date? <laughs> oh, he said uh, three years. Three yeah, years. So you said three years. I thought you said thirty-four years. I was no, calculating. No, no, no. I said the last three <laughs> to four years. Nice. Uh, nice. Yes. Uh, since nineteen eighty-nine. We all moved that slow. Nice. Now, uh, so just point being, I, I think from the White House down, I think the White House realized, I don't think I know the White yeah. House realizes the threat associated with cyber and nation state and the threat to our critical infrastructure. But you also have to realize that, you know, the executive government, the, the White House, they're about policy and about policy making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they can create policy and push, but we still have, you know, this thing called the legislative branch that makes Laws, the purse, you know, right. and this whole group over here that determines what's legal. And so, you know, the federal acquisition record, as an example, is thousands and thousands of pages, right? And you see change, you see things happening, you see a spotlight, even within my industry. Um, on May of, of 2021, the president signed an executive order, Executive Order 14028, specifically related to enhancing the cybersecurity around the software in the nation. Yeah. And, and that executive order uh, led to a new standard, which led to uh, a new mandate that came out of the Office of Management Budget that ultimately said, commercial sector, if you make software or a product with software in it to include firmware, you must now do these set of things related to better securing your software. We have to start good. when it's being built and better protecting it at the base versus coming in after the fact and trying to fix a problem that is then being figured out. But now we're in implementation, right? Now we're in the, well, how do you pay for it? And what do you do? And how's it being enforced? And, and all of those pieces that play into it. We like to say that we, we think we figured a lot of that out and a way to do that for, for vendors in an easy, cheap way. But that's the reality of, of policy to implementation. It's good. That's a good education. I, I, I know, Kent, you probably have questions too, but I'm going to get the wonk in me a chance to ask a question. So if you could lay out a couple requirements to continue on that momentum. And look, here's a dirty little secret. I want everybody to hear this. We shape requirements in business. Like our job is to inform the government of what isn't just an idea, but that there's money and innovation in industry, businesses that can give them the capabilities that achieve their desired outcomes. So this language that everyone, I think, in our world talks all the time, what's the requirement? And the requirement could be a policy mandate. But for technical people or wonky people who need to see a cyber-like 
dashboard that has certain information in it about IP addresses or certain threats that tell you what to do next, how to act, how to shut off a port, like super tactical. You don't get there from policy. You need requirements. And so usually the government turns to MITRE, RAND, think tanks, but they also turn more and more to entrepreneurs like you, right? And they'll ask you, what should our requirements be? And then their responsibility is to openly compete it and make sure everybody can sort of respond to what it is that you've just done, right? Like, so that's how supply and demand works in government. And I know you know that, Brian, I'm just saying for everybody that doesn't, it takes a lot of time. Once that happens, once that sort of loop between acquirement, the entrepreneur's idea, marry up, you can get this aha moment of real innovation, right? That's how we got DARPA and the internet and computers and all these things as a conversation and some back and forth. So do you have any sense of like how to make the requirements process for what you do, for what CodeLock does? And this is sort of a chance for for you to tell all of us why CodeLock is great and why what you do is great. I'm a big believer that requirements should be known and not like secreted away between the procurement people and the vendor, because that's a kind of an unfair advantage. I mean, there's going to be some back and forth there, but at some point it needs to get out. What's the requirement that everybody needs to know that can make the world better, that can build on this momentum, that can give us a reason to get ahead of the threats, right? Like, how do we get requirements out of the wonky space into, okay, I get it, and it's a fifth grade level? It's a great question. And there's there's probably multiple different aspects uh, of this that we can we can talk about. Yeah. I have two immediate thoughts that, that come to mind when you are, were discussing things. The first is going to go to take action. And so, you know, you mentioned government coming to industry and, and asking for ideas. Within my world, um, the, the subset of cybersecurity that I'm involved in is specifically related to uh, securing software development and the cybersecurity mm-hmm. around how software is, is built. And there's been a lot of movement uh, in, that, in that space, in, in that area. But what I haven't seen is I haven't seen the government actually taking much action to do something in the space to actually secure. An example, Department of Defense, Army, October of last year, put out a request for information related to this topic. Well, right now, updated version of that request for information one year later, and, and action mm-hmm. still hasn't been taken. Um, I, I tell you, I, I briefed the, the Secretary's Office of the Army a year ago mm-hmm. on different things that, that we were doing. And yep. I have a contract with the Army you know, to, to do things. To advise, and I'm right. just using this as, as an example, um, and, and action isn't being taken. Yeah, um, it's a great so, example. That's 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 one thing. The other piece on kind of is there policy or something specific? But one of the things that we're really doing different, and this goes back to SolarWinds, is we're trying to link the person to the technology. And so let me break that down just yeah, for a second. And if you kind of go back to what I started with behavioral data science, you can see where some of this mentality came from. But when you look at the the SolarWinds attack that happened. The, the first step that failed had to do with the Russians getting access to credentials that they never should have had. It was a, it was a people problem, right? Which led into a technology problem, 
access yeah. and insertion of malware and, and so on. So what we're doing is, is we're starting with the software developers and linking them to their code. We patented a way to create a chain wow. of custody between the software developer uh, and every line of code that they commit into a process. And there's all kinds of different data. You know, when you're talking about the, um, the, the insights from an unimaginable amount of data, that there's information that, that we can get and link and analyze to stop things at that part of the process that's currently been not looked at in the past. That's great. Real quick, and then over to you, because this is so important and it's technical, but it's not that technical when it comes down to what you said. You can't learn without taking action, right? Like if you don't do a new thing, try, see what works, meaning secure how software is built. I've heard of companies doing sort of code level security for years, but not with the behavioral focus. If I'm looking at this as a voter, I want a world where software developers are scored as to their quality of code and their trustworthiness, especially if nation states are targeting software that we all use and buy, and we're all exposed to software supply chain attacks. So I want the best of the best to get the good housekeeping seal of approval, to use a common term, right? That makes total sense to me. And that could be a policy, right? That, and that's how I think the, the new world of shaping requirements to me has to go from if it impacts a voter, if it impacts the kids, the lawyers who are afraid to be embarrassed, the people who don't understand and want to issue another RFI after another RFI, maybe they don't realize that the clock isn't on our side with these particular capabilities. And we have to try things, learn, see what works, let the culture take hold. Until you have strategy and culture working together, they're at odds, right? So I know we could go on and on about this, but that's my little soapbox, Brian. I mean, I appreciate you answering these questions. And last week we were talking about big strategy, geopolitics, but this is where it's played out, right? This is where the battle has been playing out for a good long time. And thanks for your service to be on the front lines. Those are great recommendations in in my world. And and I hope I've done some justice to folks who don't know what cyber typically means, that it's these people writing code that we got to start with protecting them. But Kent, over to you. What do you you think as a non-cyber guy at all? um, I shouldn't say that. That's not fair. You're I'm actually fully, since we're staring at each other in, in pixel yes. form, I'm actually 100% cyber right now. So, which, which, which makes me think about the word <laughs> itself, which cyber comes from, mm. I'm a word guy. So cyber comes from like a world apart, right? It's this, maybe we read Isaac Asimov as kids, right? Because we're old enough to have done that, right? And then all of a sudden there exists this other world, this cyber space, this different place people are afraid of. I wanted to tie that, Brian, back to you and your stories from the very beginning with the secret service, right? This post 9-11, this, and to be honest, you know, even as a kid, this experience of losing your home and the kind of parts of your life that are secret. So I kind of wanted to tie it back and say, cyber, the secret service, these, these parts of our identity maybe we don't share with the public. I'm curious as to your view of the world as the the bass player in the band or the rhythm section in the band as opposed to the lead singer in some ways? So my my focus is I always wanted to do well while doing good. And 
I think my whole mission in life ever since I was a kid to, to now has been about protecting people, property, places, products, or even corporate mm -hmm. profits and uh, that idea around protection. So, you know, the, the secret service, yeah, there's that word secret, but it, it's the protection aspect, whether it was the protection of the nation's currency in 1865 when it was started or the protection of presidents and their families and world leaders. That's been my life and that's been my mission. And I think that's going to continue to be my focus. It's awesome. That's that firefighter vibe too. And the EMT from being a kid and wanting to help people. That's pretty neat. And if, uh, and what's your, if you were to give a, an encouragement to people who are maybe doing a desk job and maybe, they want to feel a little more of the purpose angle of things. What's your encouragement to people? So looking at my wall right now, I have uh, three pictures. One says hustle, the other says grind and execution. And, uh, and I think regardless in life of what you're doing, don't give up and keep on pushing towards whatever your goal is. That's awesome. I, I think there's a word that no one says I'd like to hear more people say, which is the entrepreneur. It's that spirit that you have, Brian is inside the organization and can get things done that the world needs, that that partners like you on the outside who speak the inside language need. And an entrepreneur can still respect the rules, still be moral, and be strategic. And you combine entrepreneurs and hustlers like that, I think we have a great chance to get ahead of these scary problems and uh, maybe not have to all become bots ourselves someday. I, I have faith in the future and our capabilities, and uh, I awesome. think that um, we're gonna we're gonna succeed. So we should probably end on that image of the. Uh, we'll fade out to uh, the image of that little kid with the GPT logo, just just for kicks. Um, but where can where can people find out more about the things you're doing? Sure, uh, you can always uh, you know look me up on LinkedIn. But our website is codelockit codelock.it. Easy to remember, codelockit. When it comes to your software nice. um, so feel free to to look us up there and um always happy to help out wherever we can it's great brian thank you for your time uh we'd love to have you back again we interview and panel so if there are folks that you think we need to hear more from you're a friend of the podcast you can always come back and uh, tell us who else we need to talk to thank you so much for your time thank you That was really cool to talk with Brian Gallagher about a lot of things that I never would have even thought about talking about uh, today. Yeah, homelessness, even for me, was a surprise. I've known Brian and his family since grade school, and I don't remember that ever coming up. And credit to his parents for not making that a stigma or defining issue, at least not to us. They're a great family. And I, I mean, yeah, I didn't want to. It's weird to fanboy around people when you're like, oh, Secret Service, that's so cool. But there's definitely a cool element here of like, wow, he did some neat stuff in his career, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't know the half of it, but I, I wanted to, but restrained myself from asking him to tell us some, what was the craziest thing you ever saw? Or, <laughs> you know, what did a president or, you know, this person do or whatever, like, but we should say I'm we should we say that. we should say <laughs> the uh, the government actually came into the recording. He he did tell us all that amazing stuff. It's just the government <laughs> redacted it. That's what we should yes, say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the new Mission Impossible has like AI redacting things in real time. I'm just waiting for that to happen. So if that happens here first, that's an event. <laughs> <laughs>
Nice. And, but you won't know it. So, uh, so let's just imagine <laughs> it happened. And then I, maybe it actually does happen because we're imagining it. I love it. All right. So this was great. Great interview. As always, we want to just quickly say, come check out AmericanStrategyPress.com, partner of ours. Yeah, we're excited. Like I said last time, and I'll keep banging the drum. We want to punch up from what I hope is signal into the noise. And lots of people with experiences we don't even know about have signal in them, in their history, in their story. And what I mean is substance, something that matters, a story of homelessness, in this case, motivation, 9-11, and wow, amazing service, and still banging on the front door, uh, trying to get the country better about cybersecurity. So stories like that, if you have one inside you, American Strategy Press, I think our partners are looking for you. You can just go to that site and uh, go from there. So I'm I'm listening to Luke Combs this week. Who are you listening to? It's a good question. Uh, I like world music radio, uh, John Batiste. Nice. I'm feeling that. I got a little Roots Reggae channel on Spotify that I'm walking my dog to. I like that one. Does your dog also have uh, his own, his or her <laughs> own beats? Uh, so you're you're kind of jamming together, or is it? No, but he has some kind of internal rhythm, man. That guy, I love chasing him around. He has like this little spring in his step. So, but that's a good idea. Somebody needs to invent that, like a little you and your dog listen to the same music. Love that. Well, my, I'll say, I'll close us by saying, my dog. When I start playing music, my dog starts chewing his bone. He thinks we're doing the same thing. I don't, I don't want to tell him it's not the case. So let's just, yeah. Ignorance is bliss. That's right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, can't wait to see who we talk to next time. Till then.